Thanks for tuning in for Access Utah. Before we jump into today's interesting topic, uh, just a couple of comments based on yesterday's program. You'll recall we talked with Giles Chapp, an automotive expert, about his interesting new book that he was the editor-in-chief of, a beautiful color book, a coffee table type book called Drive, The Definitive History of Driving. And uh, Steve in Arizona uh, uh, tuned in uh, and uh, caught the program and gave us a few comments via uh, email, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, we can take your comment as well. Uh, he says, just tuned in time to hear you talking about driving on the other side of the road. There are only three places I've driven where traffic flows on the left side of the road instead of the right. The UK, Australia, and U.S. Virgin Islands. The Virgin Islands are the weirdest because though they drive on the left, the steering wheel is also on the left. Instead of having been moved to the right side of the car as it is in Australia and UK. It takes a little getting used to, I would imagine. Steve continues, be sure uh, he gives us a link. Uh, worldstandards.eu slash cars slash list of left driving countries. And he says, when you go to that site, be sure to expand the Caribbean region for an interesting mix of left and right hand driving. And uh, left and right are depicted in that map by a mix of yellow and green. He says, I was struck by a mix of yellow and green in the Lesser Antilles. On a closer inspection, I see that all the islands are yellow, left side of the road, except for those which are French, Guadeloupe, Martinique, and St. Bart's. Steve also says, sad to say, I think Montana no longer has an unlimited speed limit. Pretty sure it has been dropped to 80 miles per hour. We talked about that in the program. I've been skiing in Montana the last couple of seasons. That's my recollection. Finally, Steve says, and I gave uh, set out this question to our listeners at the end of the program, what's your favorite drive? He says, favorite drive? Too many great drives in this world to truly have a favorite. So let me choose four really great ones that I love. Utah Route 12 between Torrey, near Capitol Reef, and Hatch. Overland in central Massachusetts and Connecticut between Amherst, uh, Massachusetts, and Wilton, Connecticut through the Connecticut tobacco growing region. Circular loop in the Italian Dolomites from Araba to Cortina d'Ampezzo and back again. And circular loop in the Colorado Rockies from Telluride to Durango and back again. Favorite car? I put out that question as well. 1974 Datsun 260Z 2x2 I owned when I was in my 20s and 30s. That's Steve. Love to get your answer to those questions. Favorite car, favorite ride, upraxcess at gmail.com. Welcome now to Access Utah. The Benyon Teachers Workshop for the Perpetuation of Democratic Principles happens each year on the USU campus. It's a program made possible by an endowment to Utah State University's Mountain West Center for Regional Studies. The endowment was created by Ione Benyon, a teacher and community activist, to, quote, provide an atmosphere and educational resources to explore the concepts upon which democracy is built, the conditions under which it flourishes, and the dangers to its existence. Very timely topics. This year's workshop, which is running Monday through Friday of next week, is being directed by USU Assistant Professor of History Julie Gossard and will focus on a comparative study of the roads to democracy in the 18th century in America, France, and Haiti. The workshop will highlight the use of various forms of media, then, Revolutionary Era Propaganda, and now, the Ben Franklin's World Prod Podcast and a role-playing game platform used to teach the history of the American Revolution. The guest speaker is Dr. Vim Kluster, professor at Clark University, author of the workshop's main text, Revolution in the Atlantic World, a Comparative History. That public lecture that he's giving is on Monday, this coming Monday, June 4, 6.30 p.m. It's on the topic of discovering democracy in 18th century Atlantic. And uh, we bring in in studio here 
uh, Professor uh, Gossard from USU's History Department. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. We have on the telephone with us uh, Dr. Vim Kluster, Professor at Clark University. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And we have with us uh, on the line as well um, the uh, host of the Ben Franklin podcast. Um, we bring in uh, Dr. Liz Covert. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so let me start with uh, with you, uh, Julie Gossard. Um, these questions that uh, I own Benyon, I'm not sure when she set up this endowment. I think she set it up in 1993. 1993. So I could very, be wrong on that. Very prescient. Yes. Even then, it, and these questions have gotten even more interesting uh, today. Provide an atmosphere and the educational resources to explore the concepts upon which democracy is built, conditions under which it flourishes, and the dangers to its existence. So the participants are teachers. Yes. They're going to dive into history. But I'm sure on everybody's mind is the extinguishing of democracy in, you know, Turkey and Hungary and, yes, uh, and these dangers that we have in today's world. I think in moments of crises, in, I think that we see that there are a couple of moments of crises across the globe where we're thinking about the rise of totalitarian governments, um, people's democracy being in crisis. It's important to recognize how democracy has flourished, what are the conditions under which it got established, and also um, how can we have tools in K-12 through classrooms where we can think as global citizens, not just as U.S. citizens, but as global citizens, thinking about what are the different um, parameters around which representative government is important and how can we keep that going. Hmm. Uh, let me turn to uh, Liz Covert next. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, Ben Franklin's podcast. It's actually called Ben Franklin's World. Ben it's Franklin's a podcast World. about yes. early American history. Yep. And um, it's produced by the Omohundro Institute of Early American History and Culture at the College of William & Mary. And what we really seek to do with this podcast is provide a forum for anyone who's interested in early American history in concepts like democracy where they can come and listen to experts talk about history in a very accessible way. So it's where you'd want to go when you really want to hear the, the great stuff, the newest research in history, in a way that you can um, understand it and really enjoy it. Interesting. Uh, and I guess my mistake there, it, it, that'd be pretty cool if it was actually Ben Franklin, right? But But that's sort of... Sort of the <laughs> Ben Franklin's world, right? You're trying to draw people in. Yeah, I mean, we explore the world that created Ben Franklin, the world that he lived in, which was a very long world because he was born in like 1706 and died in 1790, um, and then the world he he helped create. So Ben Franklin, we do have episodes about Ben Franklin. It would be impossible not to because he was so into everything, um, but it's really about his world. Mm. Uh, the latest episode, at least it's up on the site now, um, The Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798. Very, you know, very timely. It is. A lot of listeners have been requesting that episode for a long time. It took us a while to find the right scholar to do it, but T Terry Halperin did a, a fantastic job of taking us through those four acts um, to, to figure out why people in the United States in the 1790s thought that the young nation was insecure in its place in the world, was under the threat of possibly being extinguished, their democracy and republic being extinguished, and why they thought that these four acts, the Alien and Sedition Acts, would protect their young nation. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Dr. Gossard, why the selection of uh, Dr. Kluster? Why, why, why his book? 
uh, for for to to highlight uh, for this uh, year's workshop. I think Dr. Kluster's book is one of the first that put together the American, the French, the Haitian, and the Latin American revolutions in a single volume so brilliantly that it's not a 900-page work, thank goodness. It's very easily digestible, but it's very important, and it brings all of these works into conver- or all of these revolutions into conversation with one another, and it makes us recognize this global moment of revolutions happening in that capacity. So I wanted K-12 educators and the participants to see this great work of history and to think about this not as individual moments, but as something that's happening sort of globally global and worldwide at that point. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Kooster, I wanted to get into a discussion of your of your book, very interesting book, uh, uh, Revolution in the Atlantic World, A Comparative History. Um, and as uh, Dr. Gossard uh, mentions, it's not a 900-page uh, text, very readable. Uh, what was your goal here? What did you want readers to take away? Well, it started actually with um, an editor from uh, New York University Press who had herself graduated from the university where I work at Clark University, asking me if I could write this book. So it didn't even start with with my own idea. But when she came to me, I started thinking about it. And um, this topic of revolutions in the Atlantic world goes to the heart of what it means to practice Atlantic history, to practice a field um, that is not focused on any particular continent or country, but um, focused on the interaction between continents, the flow of people, the flow of ideas of, of migrants, of germs. And um, it made me think immediately of a classic history book of a historian called Palmer who had written a two-volume book in the late 50s, early 60s on what he called the age of the democratic revolution, in which he described a revolution, as he called it, of Western civilization that had occurred in the last decades of the uh, 18th century uh, with many upheavals and conspiracies and revolts on both sides of the Atlantic. But he ended in 1800 with um, the U.S. elections of of, uh, 1800, um, which in a modern light doesn't make sense anymore because we now know so much more about what happened on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, And what I wanted to do with the book was to integrate um, the Haitian Revolution, which we now consider to have been a major revolution, um, as well as the revolutions in in Spanish America that started around 1808 and that didn't finish until the 1820s. Um, And I wanted to do it in in a way that both showed that there are connections between these revolutions, but also show that there's a comparative dimension. You can compare the American and the French Revolution, which is not something that is often done as much as they're part of the same era, and there are so many different parallels. Historians of the American Revolution do not often look at the literature on the French Revolution, vice versa. So that was my goal. And indeed, it, the plan was to keep it limited, because the books that Palmer had written, I think, probably add up to something like 1,100 pages, and, and that was not the goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Dr. Kuster, you say the the American and French Revolution have, have not that often been uh, compared. How... Um, what are some of the comparisons? What are some of the, the takeaways that you took away from, from that comparison? Yeah, so um, w- when I compared these revolutions, there were a few things that uh, struck me. Um, and that is, first of all, democracy was not really a goal of these revolutions, even though in hindsight, when we look back on them now, 
they may have seemed to have paved the road to democracy, um, both in the American Revolution and the French Revolution. The revolutionaries, both in the early upheavals and then in the, um, the stage when they are writing constitutions, are not really planning uh, to establish a democracy. It is about sovereignty. It's about being the boss in your own home. And what that means in the United States is something very different from France in the United States. It means that you're no longer going to be ruled by a foreign king and a foreign parliament. What it means in France is that uh, the privileged groups in society are no longer going to be in charge of the bulk of the population. So it is about sovereignty. Um, but that doesn't mean that there is no room for what we would call democracy, even though they didn't call it democracy at the time. So what you do see is that there are forms of democracy that are introduced in the United States. Um, there was, for white males, already a quite far-reaching far uh, participation of uh, people in uh, the democratic process. In France, that is only established uh, in, in the wake of the revolution. But there are other things that I began to see when comparing these revolutions, not just the French and the American, but also the others. Uh, and that is that you cannot understand these revolutions without taking into account the context of international politics. Uh, this was a day and age in which Britain and France and Spain were the superpowers, so to speak. They were involved in various wars in the 18th century, uh, culminating in the Seven Years' War, which was a, a very costly war that had to be paid for after the war, at least in part. Um, and that turned out to be very hard for uh, all of these participants, and that means that they were beginning not just to introduce new forms of taxation, um, they were introducing uh, taxes to groups that had not been taxed before, or certainly not at that level, um, and it means that uh, various reforms were introduced. And by introducing these reforms, including the fiscal reforms, groups were alienated that up until then would not have thought of uh, making any moves against uh, the empire or against um, France and Spain as, as uh, countries. So um, what that means is that um, these various uh, revolutions take place in the context in which um, uh, new taxes lead to alienation, and alienation begin, uh, lead to a beginning of a rethinking of what it means to be part of these various empires. So the context is very similar, and the timing is very similar. In the United States, the various taxes introduced by uh, British Parliament, of course, leads successively to more alienation and the beginning of what we now call the American Revolution. In Spain, it also leads to major revolts, um, including one in which more than 100,000 people die. But in hindsight, that's where it stops. It doesn't lead to revolutions yet in the 1780s. For that, you have to wait another generation. Um, so in France, it leads to the taxation of the white males in Saint-Domingue, in Haiti, which was the prized colony in the Caribbean, one of the wealthiest colonies that ever existed. And it begins a period in Haitian history that is fascinating because there are white males who believe, to, believe that they are uh, 
um, involved in a battle with the mother country, and there are some who even want to offer sovereignty to to Britain, so they wouldn't mind being part of the British Empire. Uh, slowly but gradually, they become then part of a battle with free people of color uh, in in Haiti and Saint-Domingue, and that's a quite sizable group. Um, and then all of a sudden, the slave revolt erupts in uh, 1791, and that is what we now would call the beginning of the, of the Haitian Revolution. But if you go back to the beginning, it starts with the same feeling of alienation among certain groups of white planters that were felled by planters in Virginia and that were felled um, by others who then become the leaders of the American Revolution. Hmm. Yeah, fascinating history. Um, I wonder, I'd like to get a take on, on this history uh, from our other two guests, uh, maybe starting with uh, Dr. Covert. Um, uh, let me... Uh, let me put this question to you. Uh, in the book, um, Dr. Kluster quotes Hannah Arendt, um, who, and I can't remember the quote, but it's basically that this this fact that it, at a certain point it turned from reform, this idea of reform, to maybe we can actually have a revolution. Maybe we can maybe we can start over, um, which was a pretty revolutionary idea. It was definitely a very revolutionary idea. It's not one, of course, that all Americans thought that they should be embracing. You know, um, we've found that the the idea that a third of Americans supported the revolution, a third of Americans did not support it, and a third tried to remain neutral is not exactly how it worked out. We don't have exact percentages, but it seems like, you know, there was a real split in the American populace as to to whether or not this would work in um you know, going their own way would work, but uh, they did have a revolution, and, you know, having a revolution when you decide you want to replace something, become independent, you have to figure out what to replace it with. So they they looked at different governments, um, you know, kind of like revolutions were looking at what other countries were doing. Um, they were looking at what other countries were doing here in the United States. They were looking to see what the Swiss Confederation looked like, what was happening with the Dutch Revolt and the Dutch Republic, um, what they liked about the English government. Um, they tried to fix some of the issues they thought they were experiencing with the large British Empire in the Articles of Confederation by really consolidating power within the states. And then, of course, after they ratified that in 1781, they found that by the late 1780s, that type of government wasn't working for them, that they really needed something more central, which was a very scary idea because uh, Great Britain did have a have a central government. But they, they publish the Constitution, they draft the Constitution, they get it ratified by 1789, and they have this new government. Um, and, you know, they all thought it was an experiment. I guess maybe we could look at that mm-hmm. the same way today, but uh, that's what they came up with, was what we have now as a Constitution. Hmm. So, um, Dr. Gossard, I wonder what you'd say, especially this, this second question from the, from the endowment, Ion Benyon. Um, so concepts upon which democracy is built, conditions under which it flourishes, and the dangers to its existence, conditions under which it uh, flourishes. Obviously, the conditions were there 
Oh, yeah, they, they were definitely there at that point in time. I, I want to go back to something that both uh, Dr. Kovart and, and Dr. Kluster talked about, which was this issue of global politics. I think one of the things that Dr. Kovart does really well in Ben Franklin's world um, and that the Omohundro Institute is really pushing out there is this idea of vast early America, that this isn't just the story of the um, original 13 colonies. This is a wide moment in the 18th century where everything is involved. And Dr. Kluster really pushes that forward in the book as he was talking about the Seven Years' War. Um, much of his book goes on to the European continent and tries to look at what's happening there and what are the impacts on North America in that context. And so I think both of those are things that I want teachers to understand regarding the American Revolution, regarding this revolutionary moment, is that it's not one singular event. It's this wide sort of comparative moment where mm -hmm. they, they are leaning on different countries, different examples. And Dr. Kovart said really brilliantly, the experimentation of all of this. This is truly an experiment. And it remains an experiment for France, for um, the United States, for Haiti for many years after what we consider the quote unquote end of the revolutionary period. And I think Ione would really enjoy looking at that and mm -hmm. determining what exactly are these experiments? What did those look like? What were individual actions that were going into that? What were thoughts about democracy, about republicanism? What all is happening there? Dr. Covert, um, uh, I want to go to you next and then back to Dr. Kluster. So Dr. Covert, um, this was an experiment. And I think there's a sense in which this is still an experiment, right? Is, is this still going to work? Um, I, I'm guessing there, there's probably some of that thought, is even as you go back into this history, because we all we live in the modern world. You're doing a podcast, um, trying to get this this out. I wonder how much that's in the in your mind, the minds of the historians you bring on Ben Franklin's world, that the, this is an ongoing experiment. I think it's always in the back of our mind. I actually think of the podcast often as an experiment because it's not, mm -hmm. it's mostly an audio podcast. But when we look at, we did this big series last year called Doing History to the Revolution because the Omohundro Institute and I are, are really committed to showing you not just the history, but how we know what we know, like how history is made, the process behind it all. So with that, series, we have a lot of different supplementary resources, images, primary source documents, like the documents from the period we're talking about in this app called the OI Reader. And that was an experiment. Would people use it? And we found that, yes, people will use it, um, especially teachers. It's a really so excellent resource for, mm -hmm. for people. I do have to say I use it in my own classes. So thank you for putting that together. Mm. Yeah, so we, we're really excited. So we do look at it as an experiment. But to, to get back to your question, you know, I know I think of the, the government um, as an experiment in that time. And I can see it in the way different things were, you know, came about. You know, when we talked about Pauline Mayer's work, because Pauline Mayer um, has died in 2014, I believe, you know, we were talking about her scholarship. And she wrote that really great book called American scripture, which is about the Declaration of Independence. And, you know, the scholars we talked to and Pauline herself in her book stressed that the Declaration of Independence was meant to address a very specific set of problems at that specific set of times. And she said that again, as well as other scholars about the Constitution. You know, the Constitution came about meant to address 
very certain problems of the period. And this was something, again, that Terry Halperin in our newest episode about the Alien and Sedition Acts, which you raised earlier, um, talked about with the Alien and Sedition Acts. Those acts came about because circumstances with an almost war with France, lots of immigration coming in and uncertainty about whether they were getting, you know, good, hardworking immigrants, which the Americans at that time really, really wanted, or whether they were getting maybe political ra- uh, radicals that might try to destabilize their young nation, which they feared. You know, the Alien and Sedition Acts came about because of those particular circumstances. So, you know, I think at any given time we're experimenting, right? The context of what the problems we're trying to fix and address are part of our own time. And we issue an experiment, a new law, a new program, a new idea to see if that'll answer the time. And, you know, that really hasn't changed. The founders definitely did that. And I think um, a lot of our scholars talk about that on the show. We uh, need to take a break soon. Before we go to a break, I want to uh, turn to Dr. Kluster. Uh, in your book, uh, you talk about um, how subsequent revolutions look to the American Constitution. This was, uh, you know, talk, speaking of American scripture, um, look to the Constitution, including, very poignantly for, for today, Simon Bolivar, right, in uh, Venezuela, who had a, a very favorable view and until a certain point. We contrast that with what's happening in Venezuela today. I wonder if you talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, in, in a sense, there is a connection between Venezuela today and, and Simon Bolivar in that um, Chavez, um, the, the late Chavez, the predecessor of Maduro, the president, the current president, um, called himself a Bolivarian. And um, when you travel to Venezuela, you realize everything is Bolivar, the, the currency, mm-hmm. the highest mountain peak. Um, but in general, he's had a major impact on, on Venezuelan history ever since his early death at 47, back in uh, 1830. What Bolivar said when he sat down and started thinking about the future for the, uh, the countries that he was establishing, and his idea was to, to create a vast country uh, called Colombia. It was much bigger than today's Colombia. It would have included Ecuador and, and Venezuela and um, Colombia and, and Panama. Um, was that the very first time that Venezuela declared independence in 1811, and this is a republic of which he is a part, but he's not the leader yet, that that had been a, um, a naive republic in which elements were introduced from abroad, um, copied from revolutionary France, but also from the United States. And what they're thinking about then is things like... Um, two chambers of, of um, parliament, the, the House and uh, the Senate, um, the vast powers of, of the president. All those elements were uh, seen as typical of the American Revolution. And what he said is that what we have borrowed from other countries um, doesn't necessarily fit our people. And when he said that, uh, there were clearly racial and racist overtones in his thinking. Um, there is a British diplomat who conversed with him and who uh, sent letters. Those, those letters, I don't think, have been published in Spanish, and certainly not in Venezuela, where Bolivar is still considered to be a demigod. But they show that Bolivar had a certain fear of uh, the black population, the population that in the beginning was still enslaved, um, and also of the native population, and he considered them not to be fit for democracy. Um, so they should not have voting rights, and uh, therefore he 
saw that the um, uh, the electoral uh, rules of, of the United States, but also of, of France in the 1790s, uh, did not apply. And that had been a big mistake in his eyes. And what he begins to experiment with, again, this is experimentation on his part, is a kind of political constitution in which there is a supreme head, and ideally himself, but it should not be called the king, because there are negative associations with monarchy, and after all, he had declared a revolution against the Spanish monarchy, so he better not call himself a king. In the end, he um, takes, he assumes dictatorial powers, and he even has himself called El Dictador. Um, and that is interesting, too, and I'll actually come back to that in, in my uh, lecture on, uh, on Monday, because those monarchical leanings you find in all the revolutions, even if you look closely at the works of and, and, and the letters sent by John Adams, uh, so the more conservative revolutionaries do not necessarily move away from monarchy. What they want to move away from is is a foreign monarchy, um, but a, a local bred monarchy without perhaps you know having that name, but a, a monarchy with a very strong centralized structure and perhaps even a strong central leader is not necessarily something that some revolutionary leaders um, oppose uh, are against. Let's take a break now, and when we come back, uh, I want to talk about uh, this sentence in the promotional materials for the Benyon Teachers Workshop. Uh, the workshop is, at least in part, going to uh, highlight the use of various forms of media. Then, revolutionary air propaganda. And now, Ben Franklin's uh, World Podcast and a role-playing game platform used to teach history of the American Revolution. We'll talk about that in more. Um, you, we're talking about the Benyon Teachers Workshop for the Perpetuation of Democratic Principles, and uh, heading up the workshop this year is uh, Julia Gossard. She's Assistant Professor of History at Utah State University, and the keynote uh, speech will be given by Dr. Vim Kluster. We we're hearing from him, as well as Dr. Liz Covert, who is host of Ben Franklin's World Podcast. Uh, Dr. Kluster will give a uh, presentation, keynote address, free and open to the public, 6.30 p.m. on Monday. It's called Discovering Democracy in 18th Century Atlantic, and that will be happening in Eccles Conference Center, room 207. Uh, so all of that happening, you're able to uh, attend that if you're in the Logan area. More following the break. If you like debates, today is the day for you. Um, today, the Utah Debate Commission is presenting three debates ahead of Utah's primary elections. At 10 a.m. today, Utah's first congressional district Democratic debate. This debate will be moderated by UPR's Kerry Bringhurst and features Lee Castillo against Kurt Weiland. At 2 p.m. today, Utah's third congressional district Republican debate, John Curtis versus Chris Herod. And finally, at 6 o'clock this evening, the Senate Republican debate featuring Mike Kennedy versus Mitt Romney. Hope you join us right here on Utah Public Radio. I'm Jeremy Hobson. Critics say the president of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, has taken the law into his own hands with a brutal crackdown on drug suspects. His law and order campaign gave him a landslide win two years ago. How are people feeling about him now? His approval rating has dropped a little bit, but he's still immensely popular with the people of the Philippines. That's next time on Here and Now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio.
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about the Benyon Teachers Workshop for the Perpetuation of Democratic Principles. That's a program made possible by an endowment to Utah State University's Mountain West Center for Regional Studies. Uh, created with the endowment was created by Ion Benyon, a teacher and community activist. And uh, the endowment uh, she created has a very interesting uh, criteria or mission statement to provide an atmosphere and educational resources to explore the concepts upon which democracy is built, the conditions under which it flourishes, and the dangers to its existence. Very timely. This year's workshop is happening Monday through Friday of next week, being directed by USU Assistant Professor of History Julia Gossard and uh, focuses on the comparative study of the roads to democracy in the 18th century in America, France, and Haiti. The keynote address will be given by Dr. Vim Kluster from Clark University. It's a book signing and light reception as well. And the title is Discovering Democracy in 18th Century Atlantic. That's happening in Eccles Conference Center, Room 207, on Monday, 6.30 p.m., free and open to the uh, to the public. So we have Dr. Kluster. We also uh, have with us the uh, host of the uh, Ben Franklin's World podcast, um, Liz Covert. Liz Covert, I want to start with you, maybe just as an aside, before we get talking about uh, media then and now and democracy, um, I noticed a fun episode, recent episode, Sport in Early America. And you note in your introduction to this podcast that uh, sport is very important to today's Americans. What about then? According to Ken Cohen, who was our guest and who wrote this book, They Will Have Their Game, it was very important to early American culture. It was a it was a way to socialize, a way to prove your masculinity. It was very important male culture. Um, it was an important business model in terms of, you know, taverns used card games, which they considered sport, because sport back in early America was anything that had a bit of risk associated with it. So if you're playing poker or backgammon or some other game like that, billiards, you know, that would be considered sport because there was a little bit of risk in, in that in those games. And taverns used to have billiard tables and card tables as a way to keep their customers in their tavern eating and drinking longer. So sport in early America was very important. Um, it, it's a little bit different today in terms of how it's important, but still very important to American culture. Yeah, it's very interesting to bring those things forward. Um, then and now. So I want to get into talking about uh, media, various forms of media. So uh, maybe we can start with uh, you, Dr. Gossard, um, this idea of propaganda. Yes. We, we, it's taken on a pejorative meaning. I, I don't know if it had it then, but we, we don't like, you know, if we say it, it's not propaganda. It's the truth, right? If, if you say it and we disagree with it, it's right. propaganda. Right. We were talking a little bit earlier about how using the term propaganda and the American Revolution can feel a little bit uncomfortable at points in time. But this was something, uh, one of those tools that I wanted teachers probably teachers already know about and they try to do in their classroom, which is to build media literacy. I think that's a very timely skill that we need to think about in terms of this era of fake news, looking at sources, determining what the biases are, what the interpretations are, what the message is. And we can do that by looking at past sources. So this is sort of a tool that teachers will be able to do in their classrooms, looking at 18th century newspapers, pamphlets, um, 
dealing with the American, the French, and the Haitian revolutions. One of the exercises I'm going to have teachers doing, spoiler for any teachers listening, um, is we will look at a particular event in American history, say the Boston Massacre or the Boston Tea Party, and we're going to read excerpts from a loyalist newspaper and a patriot newspaper and see the ways in which those different events were interpreted, covered, um, how sensationalized they were, and understand why propaganda for both sides was very important to mobilizing people to different causes and to see how important the written word was in the 18th century. I think we often forget about the fact that paper is really an important part of revolution. Um, It is cheaply made. It's easily accessible. Even people who were not literate could have had access to this information in taverns and in other places where they would have been, um, you know, listening to people read or talking about the latest news. So it's really important to look back to those primary sources to understand exactly how was news being told, what was the different sides, and how can we use that critical analysis of those primary sources? How can we transfer that to our modern everyday lives? If we're looking at sources in the past, with a critical eye to understand that. Why are we not doing that in our everyday lives as just individuals on the internet, on Facebook, on social media, doing that in the same way? Hmm. Dr. Colbert, you'd be a good one to come to next on uh, maybe bridging that gap. That's what you, that's what you do. Um, so maybe starting with then, this, this idea of uh, newspapers and uh, different segments of the population uh, understanding events very, very differently. And then maybe you could bring that forward to uh, media literacy for today. You know, the press, as Dr. Gossard said, was so important. Um, that in fact, in the 17th century, you have England basically saying when they take the colonies of New York, what will become the colonies of New York and New Jersey over from the Dutch, we don't want there to be a press in New York City. We don't want there to be a press in New Jersey, the longer we can go without a press, the better, because if we give people the opportunity to publish their ideas, they're going to publish them, and they may be anti-government, and we certainly don't want that. So the the press has always been very important. It was important to the American Revolution. We did an episode with, I think it was episode 144, but I, I'd have to double-check on that, with Robert Parkinson about his book um, that explored how People like John Adams, Samuel Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and a lot of other founders use the press to try and create a coalition around the American Revolution. And one of the important aspects to remember about the press then, and about the press today too even, is that there are biases. You know, the, the press in the early, in early America, especially in the 18th and, and early 19th century, they all had very political points of view and they were all very open about their political points of view. So they kind of face the challenge like we face now in that when we we read the news, you know, we have to think about those points of view, where they're coming from, what they want us to think about certain events, and then maybe challenge ourselves to think about other ways that we could think about those events. And that that was certainly a, a thing that was happening in the revolution and something that happens in our own time. One of my favorite things about reading 18th century newspapers is that they're very um, open about their political stance. You know, they'll have a tagline that says, you know, the the Massachusetts spy, the most patriot newspaper ever or something like that, um, which I think is is 
really interesting to see that because we don't always have that, even though we may know which newspapers or which media outlets tend to sway which way, it's not with the same gusto that they had back then. And I think it's one of the most fun things to look at in these newspapers to see how clear that bias was that that you were talking about, Dr. Kovart, in in that way. I suppose at least it's clearly labeled, right? Yes, absolutely. This is our, this is the way we think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Dr. Kluster, um, in your book, you you lay out uh, conditions un- under which revolutions uh, are able to happen, right? One of those is neglect by the elites or by the government. Um, again, parallels to, to today, at least, you know, in America, so, you know, some people, the people that voted for uh, for Mr. Trump uh, felt neglected by, by all sides. Um, another key factor that you write is that uh, that revolutionaries were able to get a coalition of various stratus of society. I wonder, first of all, uh, what the role of media was in that coalition building in, in the various uh, revolutions that you studied. Important? Not important? Well, I think in, in general the, the role of media was very important. Um, and uh, I think there's actually an interesting parallel to be made between two books that stand at the beginning of both the American and the French revolutions. So there's Common Sense, the book written by Tom Paine, a fairly recent British immigrant to North America who, um, whose timing was perfect. Um, so when his book Common Sense came out, there had already been a building of, of a coalition of groups uh, towards the American Revolution. But the criticism had been um, up until that point, mainly of British Parliament, and his book begins criticizing the British king. Um, and the book sells tremendously well. And there's an interesting parallel with another book, and that comes out of the, in the winter before the French Revolution. And like Paine's book, which contained all these memorable slogans, and is very forceful in its reasoning, there's no room for doubt, this book in France uh, is published by a man who's a clergyman. He's a non-practicing clergyman, and he is writing a lot. And right here, in the winter of 1788-89 in France, public opinion explodes. So a few years before, there had been perhaps a few political pamphlets written um, per year. Now it is more than a few dozen per week. And this man, uh, Emmanuel Joseph Sies, this clergyman, he um, publishes his book, which is the parallel to common sense. It's called What is the Third Estate? And what he sets out to do is to say to his fellow Frenchmen, we have always been organized um, in, into three different estates, the clergy and the nobility on the one hand, and then the rest of society, the third estate. There are two privileged classes in society, and there's the third one which has been disenfranchised. We have nothing. But, he says, we don't need the others. We can fill all roles in society. We are 95% of the people. We are the French nation. And that, of course, rings true for all those people who happen to be not a clergyman and not a nobleman, but perhaps a wealthy businessman, but also uh, an enslaved African toiling um, on a plantation or working as a domestic servant in, in the North. So um, that kind of language, and then that's, of course, in North America, but in France itself, uh, this kind of language also uh, appeals to various uh, cons- uh, constitutions, 
to um, people who have never really owned land, to people who um, work in the city uh, in, in, a, in a servile way. All these different groups can be part of the coalition that he is building, just like all these different groups in, um, in North America are um, addressed by Tom Paine. The participants um, of the workshop, too, are going to be looking at what is one of the largest collection of French pamphlets of the revolutionary era outside of France. And so, of course, we have a huge collection of American Revolution pamphlets easily available online, but the Newberry Library has sponsored this great French revolutionary pamphlet collection, and so the participants are going to be able to look at that and make comparisons like what Dr. Kluster has just just proposed in this way. So mm. that's going to be a really exciting part of this. Yeah, interesting. We uh, uh, just have about five minutes left. I, I definitely want to, to do this, uh, so let me start uh, with Dr. Covert with this. I'll go around the panel. Um, taking this period of history, what's one thing one thing that you would, maybe surprising, that people maybe would not know, that you would like people to know? Uh, what I'd like them to know about the period? Uh, about, about the period. Just uh, maybe just one, one fact, one facet, one, uh, one bullet point that uh, maybe, is, maybe is surprising or not well, or maybe, maybe well known, that, but you'd just like to emphasize. I think it's really this idea of vast early America, which is, the 13 colonies did not exist in isolation. They were part of a worldwide network that traded across the Atlantic and even the Pacific. And you can even go out west and see, like, the Spanish coming into California in 1769 um, and making earlier explorations into the middle part of the southwest um, and that area. And that's all connected. People were very concerned what the Spanish and the Russians were doing in the west you know, on on what we would consider now the, to be the East Coast of the United States. So people um, were very interconnected and very interested in what was going on in the world, and they didn't just exist as these 13 colonies in a, in a bubble. Mm, interesting, yeah. Dr. Kluster, the same question. What What's one thing that you would uh, like people to know? Okay, well, one thing I would like them to know is that um, none of these revolutions were meant to be. They came about um, in a long process, um, and in the beginning of these processes, very few of the participants, very few of the people who end up becoming revolutionaries, planned uh, for a revolution, intended there to be a complete reversal, a complete um, uh, uprising. So uh, there is a strong element of contingency, uh, and... Um, one act and one event leads to another and has all kinds of unintended consequences. So I think there would have been very few people in 1764, 65, in the wake of the Seven Years' War, when these acts of parliament are beginning to be introduced that begin alienating North Americans right after a war in which they had sided um, with, with Britain. Uh, there would have been very few who who would have foreseen a revolution, would have um, backed the idea of a revolution. Um, and the same is true in France, and the same is true in uh, various parts of Spanish America. In France, actually, we have a snapshot of public opinion in the winter of 88-89, when people in all towns and divided into the three different estates are asked what their grievances are, 
and they compiled their grievances, and we have all those grievances. It's been um, um, conserved uh, everywhere in France. And what you can see is that in that winter, just half a year before the revolution breaks out, the people are not revolutionary, but they become revolutionary in the course of events. Um, and you cannot pinpoint any given moment at which this revolution is really beginning. We have traditional markers like the storming of the Bastille, but it's a long process uh, that doesn't begin with the revolutionary people. So it doesn't take a revolutionary people for a revolution to break out. It's the revolution that makes the revolutionary people. Interesting. Very interesting. So same question, uh, finally, to uh, to you. I, I kind of want to bring both Dr. Kluster and Dr. Kovart's points in in with each other because, you know, when you asked this question, I thought, okay, the revolution isn't inevitable, and also it's about this larger, vast early America. And I think an important part here is, is that individual choices mattered. These are people who were well aware of what was happening across the globe during this point in time. They knew what was happening by way of the media, um, by way of this propaganda that's getting put out and understanding the ways in which that propaganda may have influenced their ideas, how it may have influenced their decisions. And one of the ways that we're getting at individual decisions being important is through this role-playing process that participants will be um, doing in the workshop. So there is a great series for all of those educators called Reacting to the Past, and they have a variety of historical moments that teachers can look at, whether we're talking about the American Revolution, they have a French Revolution game, they have an Indian Revolution game, they have Galileo's Trial, many, many, many there that you could just easily Google and find. But it's important because it demonstrates that individual choices had a real impact on the trajectory of events. Nothing was inevitable. So participants get a revolutionary character. They have to do research. They have to read key documents like Rousseau's Social Construct, um, John Locke's treatises on government, and make informed debates and write articles based upon this. And they actually move through the revolutionary process. And for participants, they see just how important each individual action is. And then they, I hope that they reflect upon that in their own lives and think about what are their rights and responsibilities as a citizen, as a global citizen of this world, not just this nation in that way. And we'll uh, leave it there. Good good place to end the discussion. We're out of time. Um, the uh, Benyon Teachers Workshop for the Perpetuation of Democratic Principles is happening next week, Monday through Friday, here on the USU campus. The keynote address will be given by Dr. Vim Kluster, professor at Clark University and author of the workshop's main text, Revolution in the Atlantic World of Comparative History. That lecture is uh, Monday evening, 6.30 p.m., in the Eccles Conference Center, room 207, free and open to the public. We've also been talking with um, the host of the podcast, podcast about early American history, Ben Franklin's World. Uh, we've been talking with uh, Dr. Liz uh, Covert. And uh, to all of you, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that, and I uh, hope you'll join us tomorrow for the program. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Jen Ashton. Though known as the beehive state, Utah produces less honey than its neighbors with North and South Dakotas pouring it on. What Utah does have is honey especially suited for storage, explains Melissa Jacobson of Cox Honey, a producer and distributor of honey in Utah for more than a century. We are a dry desert state, 
It's low moisture, so our honey stores well and it crystallizes, so you can use it for long-term storage. Honey producers on the East Coast or in high humidity areas, they actually have to dry their honey before they bottle it, or it could ferment on them and spoil. That's why a lot of people like buying honey through Utah, Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, because we're kind of this drier region and it stores a lot longer. And when they say long-term storage, they mean long-term storage. Bacteria cannot survive in honey's acidic, low-moisture environment. Modern archaeologists discovered pots of honey 3,000 years old in ancient pyramids. The contents were unspoiled. Jacobson. Honey does last indefinitely for a shelf life if it's pure, raw honey, so if nothing's been added to it. It will get darker over time if it's exposed to cool and heat changes. So they say they pull it out of Egyptian tombs, but you know, it's black. It's really dark. But you can still eat it as long as it's been stored properly. While we may not be eager to go on a tomb taste testing tour, we can sample honey diversity. The flavor, color, and aroma of honey depends on its floral source. Orange blossom honey from Florida carries a fruity tang perfect in sauces and marinades. Even honeys produced at either end of the state of Utah offer different flavors. Bees in the agricultural regions of northern Utah collect nectar from clover and alfalfa, creating a mild and sweet honey popular in the pantry and for baking while bees in the southern part of the state gather from desert flowers, including sagebrush and cactus, producing an effect that is less sweet with a bit of a bite. Color can serve as a clue to flavor, according to Jacobson. Generally, the lighter the honey, the more mild the flavor. The darker the honey, the stronger the flavor. Also, since honey is twice as sweet as sugar, when you use it in baking or cooking, you only need half as much. Recipes may need adjustment for lower heat, but a honey cookie can serve up a softer crumb with a layered profile. Finally, for Utahns suffering from seasonal allergies, Jacobson recommends finding raw honey that contains pollens from your region. A spoonful a day may keep the sniffles away. That's buying local, and it's a pretty sweet prescription. This is Jen Ashton for Bread and Butter. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR, Logan. KUSK, Vernal. KUSL, Richfield. KUST, Moab. KCEU, Price. KUSU, FM, Logan. Also heard at upr.org.